<laughs> An elegant weapon. We got to make it official and all. Civilized. All right. Don't we, kids? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to An Elegant Weapon, episode 396. My name is Jay, J.M. Clark, Jay the Jedi Ross, Ross Jedi Jay, and it's so wonderful to have all you beautiful babies hanging out here with us tonight in the High Walker studio. An exciting evening, conversation a long time coming, and a bit of an appropriate one uh, for a couple of reasons. Kids, hanging out with me tonight, the one, the only, Mr. Richard Pace. Hey, how you doing? Uh, Thanks so much for hanging out, man. It's so good to have you here and see your smiling face as we were just chatting about. Yeah. Hey, 396. Is that the number you said? 396. Isn't that crazy? Wow. So you're promoting your 400th yet? Oh, hold on one sec. There we go. Sorry. Say again. So are you going to promote your 400th soon? I'm... Here's the thing about my 400th is uh, I'm waiting on confirmation of the guest. I hear you. So hear I've, you. I've got two ideas and both work pretty well. I have a guest that uh, I don't want to spoil because it may not happen. But if it does happen, it'll be a crazy, crazy cool 400th episode. And if well, I can't I- see George Lucas saying no. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> We're not far off from that. I'll give you that much. Um, <laughs> I, I'm so tempted, but trust me, when you mention that name, it's not far off at all, which is very exciting. And if it doesn't happen for my four, it was supposed to happen before the pandemic. Um, but this individual actually literally got stuck in China. Um Cause I had just met them uh, December before last. So just over a year ago and yeah. I had met this individual and uh, got to have dinner. And then I, you know, we planned it out and I was going to go down cause this guy lives in Toronto and I was going to go yeah. and interview and do a talk on the podcast live. Cause that's always most fun. And yeah. uh, he was going on a trip to China and he's like, well, when I get back from China, we'll do it up. And I was like, sweet. And then literally like a week, he left for China a week later, chaos hit. And he was stuck there for like, I think months and it never went down. So, uh, you know, the reconnect is happening and I hope we can pull it off. If not, I might just kind of do like a, one of them fun retrospective, you know, have some of the usual zanies who have been on the show over the years, pals and friends to revisit your first episode and just you know what's, the highlight fence you know what's weird a lot of people will talk about it too is uh the first seven sorry the first six episodes of this podcast are missing and uh what happened was is i used to have a co-host for the first 70 episodes i actually started this show with a friend and he yeah. uh he left the show and unfortunately he passed away and access to those first six episodes was unfortunately lost with him. And so they're just in the ether, man. So <laughs> you have to start with an elegant weapon episode seven, which, wow. which was 10 years ago this week. So you are basically my 10th anniversary guest, Richard. So Hi, it's pretty exciting, man. It started just me and my buddy, Rob Thibodeau. Hello. Hello, sir. Uh, fellow Hamiltonian, which is kind of cool. Hello, Rob. 
And uh, yeah, it started off just me and my friend bullshitting in the basement, you know, smoking dubs and talking about Star Trek and comics and Star Wars. And then uh, I was already going to Comic-Cons before that. And then I was at the Comic-Cons and I was like, why aren't I talking to these people, you know, and doing interviews? So that's and then it started there. And you've seen my face running around the trenches ever since, you know. That's right. I, I think the last time we saw each other was at Chicago. Dude. And we were talking about that was probably going to be the last con of the year. And it was. You were iffy about, was it Emerald City? Seattle. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was Seattle because we were yeah. there and I remember at your table and we're talking and, you know, it, we were worried about it, but not in any kind of, you know, we didn't have any kind of thoughts or conversation about it coming to this, you know? Well, Okay, to be honest, I do remember when all those movies about pandemics came out around 2000. Yeah. There was a lot of books about, about them too, and I read a few of them. And apparently I read one of the same books that George W. Bush read when he started the pandemic response unit that Obama expanded. Okay. So I was not, I was trying not to look like a, like a, what was it, Chicken Little running around, you know, the sky's falling. Right, yeah. I was absolutely convinced that Chicago was going to be the last con that Seattle was going to be canceled. There would be no cons for the year. And I was thinking all the way back to the Spanish flu at the beginning of last century. Right. And how it lasted years. Yeah. And I was thinking, we're looking at about a year of this. And knowing it doesn't prepare you for it. Not at all. You were already fist bumping by then. Yeah. Well, yeah. elbowing. Yeah, yeah. Either uh, or. Yeah, it was it was a joke then, but it was I was already it's like I wore a mask in the flight back. Did you um, really? I, yeah. Wow, you were on top of that shit. Um, the bag of masks I bought at a pharmacy near my hotel were the only masks I was able to get for almost a month. Wow. Yeah, so I, I bought like a 50 pack at one what, what's the, the pharmacy that gives you the receipts that are like 10 feet long? Shoppers? <laughs> no, no, in the States. Uh, I, CVS? Oh, yeah, CVS, CVS. totally. Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah. I bought a pack of 50 masks from CVS. And, and the cashier was like, like looking at me, like, why is this guy buying like Tylenol and 50 masks? And I think I got a flight to catch. And yeah. She's like, okay. Yeah, because I was lined up too. I was lined up for Calgary. Yeah, and, uh, cause yeah. this was source points big year. And, uh, that month that I saw you at C2E2 was also fan expo Vancouver. Yeah. So, and I had done another little show in Michigan called Astronomicon. Yeah. I shouldn't even call it little, it's more midsize, but it's a super yeah. cool, fun, like horror kind of show. And, Ooh. uh, but yeah, but then we went out to fan expo and just crushed it. I sold literally everything on the table, Richard, like, wow. I did. I gave the duffel bag I had. I gave it to the publishers beside us so they could take their excess home. Because I was like, literally, I didn't have a single fucking thing on on the tablecloth, and I was so stoked because I was like, okay, Vancouver likes what you know we're doing and stuff. And then yeah. it was supposed to be Calgary, and down came the hammer. It was uh, yeah. I uh, my art rep. I had ordered um like six boxes of Second Coming trades to sell at cons. Last year, I was supposed to do around 12, 15 conventions. Oh, the timing for you. That sucks. Because yeah. that was, yeah. you know, after all the hoopla that happened with the book, and then yeah. the book finally comes out and everybody loves it, and then you can't even be giving it to them personally. It's sad. I, well, I, I went through, I think, a whole box in Chicago. 
Uh, I don't know. I think that's like 40 copies. I'm not sure how many trades fit in the box. I blew through a whole box. Um, and I was, I was actually thinking, okay, well, after Seattle, I might have to place another order with my publisher because Seattle's always bigger for me than Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, I, I, I pulled, I think, I think the first person who did so publicly was Jim Zub. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he announced his cancer, yeah, but I already reached did. out to Mike Negan from, uh, from Reedpop and said, look, uh, this is looking too scary. Um, then my art rep said he wasn't going. And then it was just like, you know, the sky, it was literally like people were just dropping out like crazy. And that was it. Yeah. I think Jim recently it. reposted or shared his memory of his post yeah. from that. Didn't yeah. we see that recently? Yeah. It's and, so weird. Uh, Cause when well, I think back to that show, it seems like pretty fat, fresh memories. Like yeah. it doesn't seem so long ago that I was at that show, but now when, yeah. but when you look at what we've been through, th- like through the year, it's crazy. Like, well, this last year is a blur. I mean, it's, it's everything. How could so little happen in so short a time and make it feel like it, it, everything happened. Does right? that make sense? Yeah. But it's like, it's like lockdown after all well, Toronto, we're, we're, we're the ping pong lockdown. Yeah. Capital of the world. Because uh, we don't we don't really ever do lockdowns. Um, although if you saw the news today, they're calling for another stay at home order because Ford's last lockdown order is a joke. Oh yeah, it makes no yeah. sense. Like it, yeah. the logistics of everything have been crazy. And I try to get a pulse on it because you know you you read what you read in the news and the media, and you see the numbers, and you can get the official numbers from you know whichever area you're looking, whether it's here or in the States, but also I, on this show, I talk to a lot of people who are in tons of different areas. So yeah. getting a read on it, it's weird because some areas may have a rep for being okay. And then I'll talk to one person who's like, Oh no, it's a mess here. And it's a mess. I, it's I, a mess. Australia, Australia is fine. New Zealand, I think Pacific, is yeah, some of the Pacific Rim is fine. Yeah. Uh, because they know how to lock down. Um, okay. The weird, the upshot is, so for all the idiots who are running around saying, oh, it's just the flu, it's just the flu. Um, no, it isn't, clearly. But on top of that, because of everyone doing the safety measures, we had a record low year of actual flu. Right, right, yeah. So now I'm like, I'm just going to wear a mask whenever I'm traveling or uh, I'm at the gym when the gym's reopen. Right, right. I'm yeah, we have wear to a mask. Why, why risk it? Yeah. I mean, it's like no one needs to see my face. Well, it's been a con. <laughs> I don't think people mind that much. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, it's well, it's always been common in certain Asian countries, like in China and stuff. They've whenever you have a mask, it's just poli- or a cold. It's just polite to wear a mask, right? Like yeah. it makes sense. I was listening to this comedian today doing a great bit um, that she had written before the pandemic about how gross shaking hands actually is. And, you know, the way she was laying it out, I was like, you know, it's kind of true. Like how many germs, but at the same time, we don't want our immunity system, like our immune systems to completely not be able to handle anything. Right. Well, I think the world we live in, we're just going to be exposed to germs no matter what. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is there have been certain people where you look at them and shake their hand and you kind of go, are they the type of person to actually wash their hand after the bathroom? Right. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Or even how well, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, how I bad think, was I think the after bathroom? last year we all know how, how to wash your hands much better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I, I was thinking about it. Like, 
at these shows, man, the Chicago and like New York, like, you know, fan expo. Yes. But as much as the people do have a good idea of how big a show can get through fan expo, all the people in Toronto, you still have not experienced anything until you've stepped foot into New York comic con. Yes. It's, it's just sure. Toronto is very proud. We've got the third biggest that it is huge. It's enormous. It's amazing. But New York is another planet and people don't quite get it. And the washrooms there, like I've seen people sharing like stalls and sharing like, like sinks and stuff. You know what I mean? And yeah, uh, you look over and go, wow, that's a remarkable penis you have there. Right. Like I was in line. Well, here's a good story. A New York Comic Con bathroom story is uh, I was in line, but it was more of a mob. Right. And I just yeah. I couldn't get into the fucking washroom at all. And you know, I may be 20 people back in this big crowd and who comes walking out of the washroom, but Ken Lashley. Right. So Ken Lashley comes walking out of the washroom and I know Ken and he knows me and he sees me and he's like, Jay. And I'm like, Hey man. And he opens his arms and it was like spreading the red sea, man. Like he just went like this for a hug and like this giant crowd of people just had to disperse because you know, he's, he's this fucking, he's a big guy. Right. Are we frozen? Did I freeze? Oh, we there? there we okay. Are. Sorry. If that happens, yeah. just give me five seconds. For some reason, the internet, yeah. I don't know, it's raining and stormy. Maybe the internet connection. Probably. Um, probably. Yeah. So, so Ken, last I saw you were doing the Hulk. Okay. Ken Lashley comes out of the bathroom and I'm like, hey, and he's like, hey, and he opens his arms wide to give me one of his giant monster Ken Lashley hugs. Yeah. And he just parts that mob like a, like the Red Sea. He just like yeah. just disperses the whole thing, gives yeah. me like this giant hug, you know, and and then I was able to kind of slip under him after he hugged me. And everybody's like, oh, Ken Lashley, Ken Lashley. So I was able to use that Ken hug to slide ah. around and skip like 30 people and get into the bathroom. Right. So, Smart. yeah, I owe Ken for that love. So, Ken, thank you so much, sir, because, you know. You well, see, last New York, last year in New York, they gave us our own bathroom. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a there's a press bathroom, which is usually not packed, but it's way up top at those. Yeah. They keep it like in those top areas, I guess, so you can take cool pictures on the way down or something like that. I don't know. Uh, ours was in the loading dock area. Okay. So that's we had nice. to walk to the back of Artist Alley and go through a little door uh, with these massive like warehouse thing and like trucks and stuff and a security guard sitting there looking incredibly bored. Oh. <laughs> um, but it was like everyone used it. Men and women use it. And it was like everyone waiting in line there. But it was a lot better than having to use the, the general populace. Oh, yeah. That's just that shouldn't happen. Hello, Chad Park. How you doing, buddy? Um, so through this pandemic, uh, you mentioned the gyms. This is something that has distressed both you and I. So yes. we've never talked about this before. We just kind of figured it out through this pandemic and seeing our social media posts. So, hey, Richard going to, wants to go to the gym, too. Um, have you always been a gym goer? Was that part of your regular routine before the pandemic? Uh, yeah. Um, I'm a uh, stress eater. Okay. Um, so during this last lockdown, I put on like, seven billion pounds <laughs> um but um there's that that gap last summer where everything they when they reopened gyms for essentially a couple months yeah i was going every day with my son 
and that oh, that's is awesome. Yeah, and that was great for both our stress management because living in a pandemic stressful if you're smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I managed to beat off pretty much all the pandemic pounds I put the first thought lockdown. <laughs> but we've been shut down since what November now? At least, yeah, just before yeah. Christmas, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was late November when they did the the shutdown. Literally, had gone back to my my regular gym for like a week and got shut down. Yeah, I, like, I got back into mine for like two weeks, and it was actually nice. The my gym wasn't charging. It, like even though like when they were open for when they could only have ten people at a time, they didn't yeah. charge. So wow. they just started again this month and they sent out this email and they like, look, I know we're going into lockdown and this sucks, but we have to start charging because we have rent to pay and yeah. we're really sorry. But I don't <laughs> think anybody cared because like you just gave us like three months free gym use, even though it was hard to get in, you know, yeah. but I was there every morning with my phone and the app because you got to book through the app at my gym. And every yeah. morning I'm just waiting. I'm fucking waiting yeah. there. Right. And I finally fucking, you know what I figured out? Um your phone is faster off your, just your data than Wi-Fi. Yeah. So if you are doing something like booking tickets or booking a gym, make sure you're not on Wi-Fi. You will not be as fast as someone else. Right. So that once I figured that out, I started booking every morning and I got in for like two weeks cause I had switched, right. You saw my whole thing. I lost all the weight and was doing all the hiking. So phase two was going to be captain America and I was going to bulk up. And see if yeah. I can put some muscles on. And then a week into that, I'm feeling good. You know, I was ready to up my weights and stuff. And then boom, no, not, not again. Don't do anything. But, you know. Yeah. And working out at home sucks. Oh, it's the worst. It's the worst. Because I don't have a rack either, right? So I, I got, know. it's not safe. I, yeah. Yeah. It's like when I was a little kid, I'd work out with anything. It's like, oh, look, uh, a heavy bottle full of liquid. I'll use, I'll do curls with it. Right. But here I am, you know, 53. And I'm like with dumbbells. And I'm like, this is the wrong environment. My TV's right there. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. Fun. I just can't seem to get the intensity. Well, you got to give me your perspective yeah. because I'm very lucky in that my day job keeps me outside all day and it keeps me active and it keeps me from getting cabin fever. And, you know, I know a lot of artists. I know a lot of professional artists who have been in their one spot for the past year in their home or apartment, especially in the city, a place that can feel very enclosing, never mind being in a Toronto apartment. And, um, you know, you draw all day and like, what's it like, man, for you? Like, like, have there been moments uh, of like, where you find yourself walking around your apartment in your underwear with a tinfoil hat, like singing songs to yourself? Like, has it got that bad? Well, that was before the pandemic, but now it's not fun. <laughs> um, no, it's I. I uh, that last year was like I went into the lockdown thinking I'm going to be fine. I even adopted a dog, a puppy, right? Yes. At the time, um, and that turned into a problem. Um, but my day, even though I work at home, my day was like gym, work. Most days I'd go for like a mid-afternoon walk grab a coffee at the starbucks and walk around the chapters while i drank it and then walk right. back to the studio and work some more and so at first i was thinking well i work at home all the time i'm not gonna have a problem not realizing well no going out to the gym is not working at home popping out midday for like a little like walk around a bookstore or picking up lunch somewhere is not staying at home and not being free to go everywhere i wanted with my new dog was not also staying at home all the time Right. 
And um, so the little daily social stuff I had in hindsight was far more precious to me, even though I was used to being home alone. Oh, Christ with my internet tonight. Yep. Yep. God damn internet. God damn internet. I apologize, everyone. Um yeah, so you realized that it wasn't gonna be quite as easy, sort of thing? No, and then on top of that, my my dog, um I answered to ad, fam- family said they were breeding their dogs. Right. They were gonna have a litter. So I put my, my name on the list for the litter. Turns out to be a puppy mill dog. It was just a scam. Oh. And uh this dog had issues. Oh, I no. love this dog like crazy, but this dog had issues. Uh the moment I'm not paying attention to her, she's destroying something. Mm. She needs a constant attention. Right. So I brought it. I never had to take a dog to a trainer before. So I took this one to a trainer and none of the stuff that we were doing was fixing the behavior. And so she recommended someone who actually turned out to be retired. So I had to pay dearly to get this person a retirement for my one dog. Uh, meanwhile, she's already at that point, she's already destroyed over like a thousand dollars worth of stuff in my apartment. I had to replace a my the couch i bought the previous year oh no <laughs> yeah uh and ultimately this this trainer said um the only thing that will fix the behavior for this dog is time like she'll have to mature right um but the best thing i can do because it was driving me crazy i mean pandemic and a dog that's supposed to give you know give me even keel is destroying everything the moment i try and work um so i had to find a new home for her with more people in it makes sense i didn't need the quiet i needed right yeah and so i found uh uh, friends of the family uh three adults in the house um all the attention she wants she's apparently thriving oh that's Uh, good that's good to hear yeah yeah, so it was it was a heartbreak um because i love this little girl yeah you did um, you were all about your little poppy i thought it was cute i was like look at cigar smoking whiskey drinking richard pace and his little puppy it's, it's yeah. fucking adorable. i mean um i had to replace all the wiring for my computer at one point holy shit it ate your computer yeah. <laughs> it my computer wiring overnight one night that's crazy that's yeah. and unsafe they could start a fire or some kind cats yeah. man get yourself a cat cats are where it's at man i like cats uh i've always been a dog person Right uh, I love cats too. Um, in the back of my head, um, I'm thinking that there's, you've, you've seen the stories where all the people are adopting dogs and cats during yeah. the pandemic. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have a feeling that when it ends, a lot of people are going to go, Oh, this is too much work. Some might. And, and, yeah. And, and it's like, and I'm, I'm thinking there's going to be a lot of dogs that are going to need homes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in the summer, fall. Especially when kids go back to school for real. Um, so I'm gonna keep an eye out for there. I might I might go after another dog then just to make sure that no one's like lost in the humane society. Oh, that's a sp- I think there's gonna be a flood of, yeah, I think there's gonna be a flood of dogs. Well timed so, but, but anyway, yeah. So that's smart so to pandemic, take your head. Yeah. 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 So the um, pandemic fucked with me hard. So Anthony Ruckazer, Anthony Kingdom yeah. James, you know Anthony? I do. Um, he adopted a little kitty, little Chloe. Uh, months ago and that's been adorable because he is the the 
the last grumpy curmudgeon I would have ever expected to have gotten himself a cute little kitty cat. And he loves this thing. Like he's always posting about the stupidest little stuff that he does with such excitement. And I'm like, oh, that's cute. You found love with your kitty. See, I, ha- I had a Yorkie um, that I unfortunately I had to put down like just over a year and a half, maybe ago, almost two years uh, just from age, just like she everything went. She was in pain and I couldn't watch her suffer anymore. Um, so at the time I had three cats and a dog. And two kids and two adults in the house. Right. And then I go through a bit of a life change where I go through the separation, you know, um, and we're still living together for a while afterwards because everything was cool. When Aaron and I separated, it was, you've met Aaron and, uh, it's super amicable. We're still like besties and stuff, but, uh, so we were, you know, still renting together. And, uh, so it was that for a while. And then I moved out, got my own place, Uh, But the dog had just passed away beforehand. So one of the cats I left behind in that house with them because, you know, it was more kind of their cat. And I brought my two cats here to my new apartment. And then like three weeks after I move in, one of those guys passes on and he's like 17. And it was just old age again because all my animals are getting old because I've had them for almost 20 years. So I've gone from all those people in this environment to where it's now in me and one cat. And well, my son's here half the time. So half the time, it's just me, my son and this cat. And there were like nine mouths to feed. So honestly, though, this one cat, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have him to come home to every day just to like, you know, feel like I'm coming home to something because I'm so used to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I got to tell you, it's like the weird and weirdest thing about Rocket's behavior was um, she destroyed stuff when I was here not paying attention to her. She never destroyed anything when I was away at the gym. Hmm. So I, uh, the first few times where I was like leaving her, there's a lot of times I put her in the crate initially, but then she was good on, uh, then she was house trained essentially. Uh, so I'd come back and she'd be sitting in the same spot on my couch waiting for me. I'd be like, oh, that's great. And she'd be like so excited that I'm back. I'd play with her for a little bit. Um, I'd make sure, you know, I'd take her for another walk come back in say, okay, time for me to go to work. And then I'd realize she's not in the studio with me. I have to go look for her and find out like what she's doing. Oh man. She's a stubborn dog. She's not taking it well. eh? (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, at at the time it was, uh, yeah, it's apparently certain dogs when they go through the whole puppy mill process, it can really mess with their heads. Right. Oh, definitely. I mean, this is a dog who did not want to, walk on strange surfaces she'd freak out leaving the apartment for the first time on a leash right she'd freak she wouldn't want to walk on that carpet Every, everything in my my apartment's parquet flooring could so have been inbred too carpeting. i guess right yeah 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 and then walking on concrete versus asphalt both freaked her out just the color change freaked her out apparently weird or the value change or whatever so she didn't know what any surface was like she she um and when i told that to the older trainer she said there's a very good chance the first time she was really out of her cage is when she was given to you right that's crazy man that's well yeah that's a see that's a trauma you're being handed a ball of trauma right (laughs) like that's difficult okay i want to get your perspective on something because uh we may have talked about this in the past uh, yeah. but not as in depth as we could right here, but I have a theory 
Now there's one, there's lots of wonderful comic book communities around. I've, you know, I've my toes in a few of them, wonderful, amazing people all over the place. And they're all very unique and they're all different. When it comes to Toronto and Southern Ontario, I try to explain to people in uh, other areas and places how unique it is here as far as the top tier quality caliber of artists who all live within say two, three hours of each other in Ontario. And cause it's mind bending, right? You know, it is. If we sat here and went through the list from you to Leonard Kirk, to Ken, to Ty, to there's it literally, we could sit here and name 40 fucking people to Fabok to Finch who are like three hours away. Like it's, it's, it's staggering. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, I think that it's so incredibly unique in that way because of Toronto's artistic and cultural, uh, like, uh, I guess, environment over the years where you've got this plethora of art available as far as education in like colleges and galleries and, you know, institutions like there's just art steaming out of every you know pore of every area of all the little cities around and stuff and you know i that's the only reason i could think of why you would have this abnormal amount of creators who have worked for the big two and who've worked for everybody within three hours of each other does that jive with you does that make sense with you of because you you're part of this you've as you said you're 53 you've seen a couple decades of this you know, community yeah. and been part of it. So what's your perspective on that? Do you think I've, I've come close to hitting the nail on the head? I, th- I think you're close. I think there's, there's, uh, there's a few things that you, you didn't bring in the, the context here. Um, one thing is, is we are the largest city in, in Canada. Right. So just on gross population, if, if we're going to have a comics community of any density, the largest city in the, in, in the country is going to be the one to have it. Right. Um, the second thing, is uh, Toronto in the area has two of the leading art in, uh, instruction schools in Canada with OCA and Sheridan. Right. So I, I, I was born and raised in Winnipeg. I came to Ontario for Sheridan. And I stayed because why the hell would I want to go back to Winnipeg? <laughs> I didn't know you were born in Winnipeg. A bunch of your yeah. bios are wrong then, by the way. Really? Oh, I, yeah. I usually say I was raised in the wastes of Canada by penguins or something like that. Not ones you've done, but like the ones that other people have done peg you as being born in Toronto. I've seen one or two. Oh, yeah. Nope, yeah. nope, nope. Internet. Born in born in Winnipeg. Uh spent part of my childhood in Calgary. Cool. Um college beckoned when I was 18, came out to Sheridan, and I went back one summer. Winnipeg, I was like, "Fuck this!" <laughs> You're like, and and then, <laughs> then I was done. I was done. I stayed. I stayed in Ontario. I became a uh, uh, Toronto citizen. Yeah, yeah. Although I lived in Hamilton as well. Uh, that was interesting. yeah. That's where I've ended up. Well, yeah. that that's coming uh, around. You know, I moved here, and I'm like Hamilton, right? It's got its reputation. And there's definitely parts of Hamilton that deserve that reputation. But I had no idea to the extent of the hiking and the environment as far as like war memorials and cool places to go. 
and a lot of cool places there. didn't even realize it was like the waterfall capital there's like waterfalls every 10 minutes Everywhere. to like go look at so that was super cool it's cool that you ended up in toronto though because you're obviously way more of like a toronto city type guy than a fucking winnipeg guy <laughs> yeah 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 do you think it um, do you think that all I, that whole, I, yeah sorry um oh so and, and the third thing the third thing communities attract themselves they have they have their own gravity right so as soon as, as soon as you actually have a somewhat noticeable community of people doing a certain thing it attracts other people because you want to be attracted by other people from that community yeah um so as soon as you have like 12 or 15 people working in comics and let's say you visit toronto for a convention from i don't know victoria which may or may not have that strong community you kind of go well geez i want to hang out with other comics people i'm going to go to toronto Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and there's that because i mean uh i mean i think that's the story with carrie nord i mean he was a calgary artist uh now he's someone who actually feels like a calgary person if that makes okay. sense <laughs> no because i don't yeah. know the calgary he person always, he always feels a, white felt a little out of place in toronto yeah uh so he came out then he went to montreal and i think he went back to calgary i think he might be going back to montreal i don't know but um i mean there's certain people that 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 want to be surrounded by people who do the same thing and i understand that yeah and i think i think we're also crazy lucky here in that the creators we do have are so willing to pass it on i mean you know like from like the earlier level like you know there was all like all these people went to sheridan and uh like you know um they come out and they're doing their thing but then you've got like the boot camp and when i talk to the next generation like when I talk to a bit and I don't want to call it the older generation because all y'all ain't necessarily all that old. But when I've talked to Jim Zub and stuff, right, like people who have like been through the Sheridan experience, it yeah. seemed like that generation got set through that. And everyone else I've talked to in the next generation, not one of them hasn't been through the boot camp. Like not one of them hasn't taken at least one little course from Ty. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it, it's just. Well, there, there is actually there's a, kind of like a weird sideways story to that. You know about Max DeMott, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Dave Ross I developed a comic there. book. Right? What? Dave Ross is still teaching there. Is he not? Or is he gone? I think he's, I think he's still there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was I was hired to develop the comics program. I think I knew uh, this. Yeah, I think I yeah. knew this. Yeah. And then I ran screaming from the school the second year. <laughs> and it was hilarious. So I was I was coordinator of the program and I butted heads with the people running the school because they wanted they clearly had no idea or respect for comics. They just wanted students to pay money. Right. And when I started fighting with them over what I thought was extant for the course for the students, they were like, oh no, no, we don't want to put an effort into this. <laughs> why are you doing it <laughs> yeah i know I'm, I'm like uh some of the arguments were insane but anyway so i'm leaving it's like they offered me a, gr- a reduced role because they still wanted me there to promote me because i had comics background yeah but i was like if i'm not if i can't defend what these students are paying for i'm not going to be there yeah of course i mean there was like program they didn't have a history of comics program in the curriculum that I thought was there, they, they tried to teach them history of animation. I go, why are we teaching them history of animation? So they can take storyboarding. I went, storyboarding is not in the curriculum. Well, if they want to do storyboarding as a side gig, 
they need the history of animation as a prerequisite. Why are you worrying about the side gig? Like, I know, <laughs> you need the main right? gig first. <laughs> and, and I had already lost the fight to, to make, they wanted to do a children's book program. I said, okay, half semester overview of children's book illustration. But they managed to make it into a full year, a full uh, full semester thing in third year. And I'm like going, the only industry that fucks over artists more than comic books is children's books illustration. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, so I ran screaming from this place. And I'm talking to Ty. He says, oh, yeah, they tapped me. I'm going to be running it now. And I went, really? And I tell him what I went through. He says, oh, they won't do that to me. I'm Ty Templeton. <laughs> he was gone he was gone it's like i'm going oh, oh, you don't understand ty they don't give a fuck about you right right uh, so i have no idea how how dave ross has la uh, lasted this long i don't know he no must idea. he must just love teaching or something i do enjoy his book the 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 superhero yeah, drawing book, book he put out there's some book cool ideas in yep. there for like a guy who's just like a layman yep. hobby drawer like me you know so let's talk about your art a little I, bit. I love teaching too but I, I none of the I, I taught at Durham College after for a few years uh, oh yeah like seven years a few years right um the system for education is 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 messed up as far as I, I can see it um I think I'd rather do it in a, an atelier type of uh, uh, environment where you, you teach the skill specific courses. Right. And if they don't pass it, they just take it again. Right. Yeah. Instead of like having years where you have to get everything in three years. Well, not everyone gets all the skills they need in three years. Sometimes they need four or five. Yeah. Not everybody is at the same rate for sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and um, the schools that we have them set up now, they're, they're, they're money churn machines. Right. It's, it's like, you know, give the kids certain rubber stamp skills, get them out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, no, the arts don't work that way. Yeah. No education is specific enough. You know, like this, like I've had this interesting thing that unfolded you know, my, my son's 10 years old and he's an absolute, like just drawing freak. Like he just draws and draws and draws. That's all this kid does. If he's not playing video games or watching TikTok, he is drawing like it's not I don't have to yell at my kid to go to bed at two in the morning because he's playing video games. I literally have to tell him to put his goddamn markers away and go to bed like he's just insatiable, which is great. Right. Like far more motivated than I was as a kid, especially nowadays. You've got the, the YouTube and the instructional videos and the, the, the amount to motivate and teach them is crazy with the technology they have. So. My kid has spent, he was on this pandemic, right? Like he's been back in school. I can't even keep track of when they've been in and out of school. But, you know, the main first chunk where it was just months and months, he was home for whatever, eight, nine months straight. Uh, all he did was draw. And you can literally look at from when he started before the pandemic and he was already pretty good. But where he is now is just like, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the stuff that I've posted of his but this, this you showed me some of his work last year, but you haven't followed through it anymore. This kid is just like, I can't even believe how far he's come. And I know it's because he's literally had every day, all day to do nothing but work on the skills he wants to work on. And it's completely yeah. just showed me that, man, like these kids, 
we know earlier where people are adept to go in their lives. Like, like it's ingrained in us, which areas we want to go into. And if we could just somehow restructure education to tap into that more, we could have things where this kid turns into an amazing artist within nine months. Cause that's, you know, he has so much time to do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's um, our, our, our education system is derived from a process to make workers, not people, right? Workers. Absolutely. And we are now as a civilization, at least Western civilization, we recognize that everyone's an individual, but we're not willing to dismantle and rebuild the institutions we built before we recognize that individuality. There's, there's a complete serious disrespect of the individual in any institution that we have extant. Mm-hmm. The individual doesn't matter mm-hmm. uh, unless it's you. Right. And you're talking about yourself, right? Right. Yeah. No school wants to deal with so they hate problem kids. Yeah. Right? yeah. I, I was one uh, I wasn't like a problem in, in terms of like you know violence or anything. Well, I did have fights, but I was always the one who asked questions that the teachers didn't really want to answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um <laughs> And they hate kids like that. And it, or if a kid's getting bullied, they don't want to deal with the kid getting bullied. Yeah. That's too much work. Yeah. So and they then, put down a process, no touching. Yeah. Well, how does that stop kids from being bullied? The bullies get away with it. Right. Yeah. Everything, everything is designed to, to uh, ignore the individual as much as possible. Yeah. It's neat. I have a, I have a good friend who's a social worker in the school system. Mm-hmm. And from what I've gathered from our conversations is how little help you get from the whole rest of the structure, you know, like how often the parents aren't as involved as they should be, or the communication has broken down between like parents and kids to an extent that often the counselor is the only one listening and they can only do so much. And, you know, I know she cares and I know she, you know, really cares about these kids and does what she can, but to a certain extent, you're, you have to be given the tools to do so. And a lot of it is just passing off. Like a lot of teachers or whatever, or parents are like, Oh, they're seeing your counselor. So that's enough. But it just so necessary, not necessarily like that, you know? So, yeah. Well, there's also, I mean, sorry to cut you off, but um, when I was teaching, especially at Durham, um, I ended up being, I'd be the only one in first year who'd fail students. Oh, yeah. Everyone essentially rubber stamped the kids in first year at right. Durham in the animation and games program. It's like, oh, they showed up. They did enough work to pass. We'll pass them in the second year. I'd be like, they didn't do the work. F, right? Yeah. And, um, and the administration wasn't particularly fond of my doing that. But I was approaching from the mindset, if they can't do my curriculum, there's no way they're going to work in the studio professionally. There's no way they're going to be able to do a job here. So for every year I was teaching there and there was a parent-teacher meeting with, with the staff because the student was failing, I'd explain to them, this is, this is how we did the course. They had to do a small assignment every week. And if they didn't do it, they got a chance to redo it or at a reduced mark. And they only failed my class if they just didn't make the effort. Right. So if they can't make the effort here, this is clearly not for them. So why throw more of your limited resources as a parent 
into getting yeah. your kid an education in a career they're not going to see. And at. time, wasting time yeah. in your life, yeah. right? Like it's a year of the kid's life. You're making a good argument for kind of a case of where, you know, I think maybe with the younger kids, you, you could just have, you know, teachers. And I'm not saying this to disrespect teachers in any way. I know how difficult their job can be. But as far as even the education of teachers, say, you know, little kids, um, you know, you are most teachers who teach, you know, certain grades and lower are specifically kind of trained for that, you know, area. But it, it's almost like, say, high school it'd be better to have a teacher who has had to do, you know what I mean? Like if you want to be a teacher in something, you should have an apprenticeship or a certain amount of time in that field that you're teaching. Like say, if you're even a math teacher, you should have to spend a certain amount of time doing whatever kind of equations all day in a lab or whatever kind of job you would get out of math. You know what I mean? Like, it just makes a lot more sense because I talk to guys like you who are guys who've lived in the industry. It's like, sure, I can teach you to make all the great art in the world, but how are you going to sell that art? How are you going to move that art? How are you going to eat off they that art? How are you going to either in art school? Art schools are almost a joke. They don't teach professional practices. Right? No. No, no I, I had to learn how to do my own taxes. I had to learn how to negotiate on my own. I had right. to learn how to invoice on my own. I had to learn how to find clients on my own. Yeah. I mean, they had this bullshit thing where it's like, we're going to help you put together a mailer and here's a list of people to mail stuff to. And when I got down to it, about a third of those businesses didn't exist anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, I was the one who stumbled across artist market. I bought like the art. They don't, I don't think they make it anymore, but it's like, I found one uh, remainder from the previous year in like my second year of college. And I brought it in the class and everyone's like looking at this, go, what is this? Well, this tells you what, certain markets are there for artists right and they're like hmm. and one of the profs goes oh yeah yeah you should get that yeah you got to give kids right. a good idea of what's coming like like as an arborist yeah. you know the humber humber offers a two-year uh arborist course so basically uh you get a job for a company and then students would go to school and it's a i think like a is it six month course twice a uh, once a year for two years or whatever, however they do it. And then you go back to work and work for the summer and we'll get these kids who come out of school, you know, these fresh 20 year old kids who show up at a tree company and, you know, they think they've learned or done well and got a good grade. So they're like, well, where's my belt? And I need this kind of belt and I need this chainsaw and I need this rope and I need this. And I, I do want to do these kind of trees and stuff. You know what? The first thing I say to them is here's your rake get to fucking know it because this is your life for the next year you know like i'm sorry you're 20 you're not going anywhere near a tree till you can prove to me that you can rake and you know a lot of these kids they'll have spent all that time in school and literally work for me for a week or two and quit and like just quit the yeah. industry because they had no idea what the actual industry was going to be like and it just crushed them you know yeah. and exactly. that quickly exactly. too right I mean, it's um, when I when I actually because now I kind of do coaching, art coaching on the side, um, like a tutoring kind of thing. Yeah, kind of like a tutoring thing. I've done I've done like I've coached people on storytelling and anatomy and stuff like that. Right on. And um, um, some of them, like some some parents approach me, and uh, after my first Zoom call with their kid, the kid says, "Yeah, I don't think I want to be an artist." <laughs> uh, so I, I tell them the truth i mean if yeah. you can't 
if you can't draw an hour every day, five, six days a week, there's no way in hell you're going to draw eight to 10 hours a day, five to six days a week. What are they thinking that they're going to be in for, right? Like if it's yeah. your job, you work an eight hour job, you're going to draw for eight hours. Does that not make automatic sense? Like if yeah. people aren't even cluing into that sort of thing, you know, it's like. Yeah. And, and it, weirdly enough, I mean, it's like under perfect situations, like pre-pandemic, I could easily do 10 to 12 hours in the studio, seven days a week, not, not sweat it because I, I do things outside of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, this pandemic year with all the other stress and everything else going on. There were days where it's like I couldn't draw. I literally couldn't draw because I I couldn't focus at all. It's work mm, to get yeah. into the zone to work, right? And I do I and this is something I love to do. And um and it's is what I've pursued my entire life. And if it becomes hard for me in certain situations, someone who says, Well, I can't even do an hour. God. because you know i gotta watch the latest anime or i got this the new video game came out so i'm not going to draw for a month right all right i mean it, okay it's like and i still fight through all that stress and stuff to still get to draw right yeah but if, if they're just gonna like blow it off well then it's not some it might be something they're good at but just because you're good at it doesn't mean it's something you're gonna do i mean what, what's that line from uh um I think it's Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Just because you got a big dick doesn't mean you have to do porn. Right. <laughs> so some of these kids, I go, just because you enjoy drawing once in a while doesn't mean it's something you're going to want to do every day of your life. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's like, so I tell these kids, it's like, okay, so if you're drawing something you're not enjoying, is it is it because you don't enjoy drawing or is it what you're drawing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I had to make, and I, I think you're the first media person I'm telling this to. So I'm backing away from second coming a bit. Okay. And I think it became more apparent uh, because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, because second coming is a very particular sort of book. Right. right? Yeah. And it was, it was actually going way back to the start of it. Uh, the vertical editor asked me if I was interested in drawing. So would you be interested in drawing a new version of Preacher? Oh, wow. Yeah, and Second Coming's nothing like that. Not nothing at all. Like that at Not all. at all. Um, I would I, I would say, as far as uh, genres, I think Second Coming is almost like the perfect incarnation of a sitcom in comic book form. Totally, absolutely, yeah. And um, I'm not a sitcom artist, right? <laughs> I mean, I can I can I can take Mark's script. I can I can look at his comic beats, like comedic beats, I should say, and I can break them down a little bit better than he can because I understand the visuals better, and um, I see the world in a certain way. But after a certain point, I've I've done that enough that I'm not pushing myself. And in the second arc, as good as it is, it's hilarious. It's actually in many ways it's much funnier than the first arc. Um. All the challenge for me in terms of like interpreting Mark's scripts is gone. Uh, there's some nice design challenges that come up, right? Uh, in terms of certain characters, and I love I love doing the covers. Covers are going to be a perpetual challenge because I mean, like for this arc, I did the split covers with like the image across the top and bigger image at the bottom. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing something different with the next arc, right? 
but um, so going forward, starting with the next issue, um, I'm just doing the layouts and covers for Second Coming. Okay. I got to draw monsters, man. I hear you. But also, like, it's this attitude that gets you to where you are as far as skill level. And as we were saying, like, if you want to draw one hour a day, like, say, okay, maybe you're good enough to, like, pass off something by drawing half a day. But do you just want to get by and have that as your job? Or do you want to get really fucking good at this, you know? Because you've spent years getting really fucking good at this. And, you know, one of the things that I enjoy about your work is that it is varied. And you are not just a comic book artist. You, you know, you're, you're all, not all over the place, but you know, I feel like, I have been, I have been. you know, yeah. But I mean, yeah. you're, I, you're free form nudes and you're sketching yeah. and you're inking and, you know, you've got these little areas that you can tell that you're really passionate about working on these, you know, this handful of different styles that you like to develop. And there's a few guys like that, but not many, you know, and you really stick out as one of those guys. Well, I think there's more. Uh, I think um, I think I think if you look at the to- totality of like commercial artists, you'll find more. Of them. Like there's there's lots of people who work in games. You do what I do. There's lots of people who work in animation. You do what I do. Like they 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 keep their fingers in traditional media. They keep they they still do life drawing. They do uh, plain air painting. They do all these things. Um, they experiment with different media, and I think that's that's uh, kind of like an artist disease. Um, to be honest, I've had friends who've only done comics and at the end of the day, they just put it aside and they're done being an artist for the day. And I don't, it's not a, not a knock on them at all, but I don't understand that because I'm just not built that way. Right. Um, when I'm doing something for fun, it's usually art related. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that is, it's like, I love art so much. Um, that my, my playtime's art. Well, you my do. You'll bang off, you, dude. You'll bang off stuff that you know. You'll be like, "I drew this for fun," and it's like, "What do you mean that was for fun?" And how did you do that in a night? You'll bust out these ink drawings, man. That yeah. you know look like they would take like days or at least like hours, like huge sessions to sit down. But I know that you work all day, so there's no way that you spent more than half an hour, an hour inking out this Frankenstein that you wanted to draw or whatever old school movie character you chose to draw that day, right? Like, I'm, I'm sure it took more than an hour. But, when you, uh, how long like, do you, time do you have and give yourself for those sketches we see online that are just, you know, the ones you felt like doing because you sparked an idea in your head? Um, well, I haven't done that many last year. Between the food bank uh, project and work right. and um there wasn't much time for that so luckily the food bank filled a large niche for that but say like those um, holidays like if it's halloween and you're like you know i like say you've done like a bella lugosi or something be like hey it's halloween and then you'll put up this picture that you just drew just because it's halloween that day yet it looks better than half the pros out there could do it's insane well it's 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 well i i guess this is why i'm 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 peeling back in second coming I want to be drawing something that I feel is the challenge to me at the time. And for that, it means I always, I always saw myself as a writer artist. Right. Right. Uh, to really tell this in the most disjointed way I can. So I always saw myself as a writer artist. The people that inspired me were writer artists, Howard Chaik and Frank Miller, uh, Alan Moore. A lot of people forget he's an artist too. Um, 
those are the people that really speak to me because they, the way they write, they write visually. They tell their stories with the imagery. Uh, I still think probably, probably the greatest collaboration uh, between a writer and an artist was the most seamless. And that was probably Electro Assassin. Okay. Whereas um, Bill started just experimenting in response to the script he got from Frank. And Frank saw what he got from Bill and said, oh, I'm going to run with this ball. <coughs> right. I think there's a, a pure sense of collaboration between those two. Um, so I need to be I need to be writing again and I need to be drawing what I write again. Um, because um, my sense of storytelling is is driven as much uh, by visual imagery as 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 dialogue or right. narrative conjunctions so you know what um, you can see it so into yeah, so, sorry you can see it in your post descriptions because <clears throat> if it is like halloween or something and you put up like a bella or frankenstein or something you put a nice paragraph up with some little tidbit like this person used to draw this because they admired that or they like to do this style. So I da da da. And then there's your picture. And I love reading those little blurbs that you add up there. You give it a little bit of context, right? Well, you, there's the reason Instagram allows you to write that shit. Absolutely. Yeah. People want to read it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. Um, so, yeah. So I'm, uh, um, so I, I finished up my commitment to this arc of second coming. Um, I have two horror stories I'm writing for an upcoming Kickstarter. I'm not running it. Other people are running it. Cool. Um, but they're doing um, a real, I, I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it, like what name it is yet. Cause they haven't okay. announced it, but I'm, I'm writing a story for another artist. I really appreciate and I'm writing and drawing a, a, a story I'm doing. And um, I believe I, I, did I tell you about my murder mystery set in hell. Yes. Yes, you did. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I'm putting the big package together for that now. Oh, that's finally happening. Dude, yeah, that was yeah. that was yeah yeah. People are gonna like that shit. You laid that out for me in Chicago, man. That yeah. was yeah. I'm really yeah. really excited for that that stuff, man. And yeah, so. like, okay, I don't even know what to ask about this, but I needed to touch on it because of all your art. I love all your art. All your art's amazing, and I love all your art styles. They all you know. And I'm being a little biased here. You you know how everybody's got those artists who hit their own you know, you hit the, that button for whoever, right? You're just yeah. one of those artists who hit my button, you know, and because of your style, oh, right? <laughs> you got your finger on my button, Richard. Um, it's the inking, man. The, <laughs> but it's the inking, the inking, your inking is insane to me. And I'm, I, I'm just a, I've always loved inking. I was always a kid drawn with ink pens. I still love to ink lines. Um, you know, that's a lot of the conversations that I got close to be buddies with Mark McKenna was about, you know, as he's just a legend of an inking war horse yeah. when it comes, to, I think he's inked over 12,000 Marvel pages or some rid Sounds about right. ridiculous fucking number. Right. Yeah. And I'm just, I just love it. And, uh, so I don't really know what to ask about it, but why are you so good at it? Like you obviously love it too, right? Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's something that sticks well, out. So what is it about it that you love? What is the passion for inking that you are often drawn to that particular act? All right. Okay. So um, I think the, the first artist that really, really 
I knocked my socks off with their pen and ink work was Frank Frazetta. And for a while I tried to ink like him, but it wasn't quite fitting. I, that, that kind of smooth, almost Al Williamson, super slick right. kind of thing wasn't working. But I'd also uh, around the same time saw Bernie Wrightson's Frankenstein, which immediately led me to uh, Booth, mm-hmm. uh, the illustrated influence of Wrightson's work on that. But then I was in a, a bookstore looking at used books, trying to find Booth books. And they said, have you ever heard of Joseph Clement Call, C-O-L-L, who's another illustrator who also, I think he was actually concurrent to Booth. Now, his pen and ink work was sketchy. Right. Yeah. And um, so I've always had a very um, loose hand with my eggs. I soon just start doing I can do the precision, but it takes me forever. Right. Yeah. But I could draw really quickly with pencil and it have this wonderful life to it. And then I'd kill it as soon as I tried to do traditional style inking. So I saw this Joseph Clement calls work and I kind of went, oh, my God, that's it. But it looks nothing at all like superheroing nothing at all right right it's it's this classic illustrators um magazine type hyper rendered solid blacks let things pull out scratch out the black and get it work uh in terms of you're familiar with uh jorge zafina sounds familiar but no fill me in his son gerardo zafina works in a very similar style to him he's also done a lot of work for marvel recently incredible rich black and white work right um that's the work that really sparks me and i also love it when work looks like it's observed as opposed to um i i i still appreciate like the super slick inking like mark farmer over alan davis or something like that but that that's a skill in in and of itself it doesn't look naturalistic it looks like a commercial line process right you get that super slick line that super slick cross hatching and I want my work to look like, oh yeah, he was there and he drew that while this was happening. Yeah. And it and does. that's <laughs> that that's what I try and go for. I mean, everything, I mean, so, when the deadline's insane, you can't do it. Yeah. It, it it takes as long, if not longer, to do that kind of like caught at the moment drawing uh as the the precision inking that you would see for classic superheroes. Right. Because you're on a mission. You're like, this line needs to go there where you're more feeling it. That's the thing. Like, I think I love looking at your art because I, I feel how much fun you had doing it. Yeah, you know, like I almost want to take my hand and like trace your shit because it just like it looks like it's fun. Do you know? It's it's a little bit like um, I'm drawing with values more than actually using the line. Mm-hmm. to describe. It's also, it's all I. I I approach I approach my comic book pages very differently from a lot of other artists because I'll throw out pages that look too posed. Right. Right. I mean, if it, if it looks like oh everything is too clean or something, or it looks like it just looks like comic art, I'll throw it out. So I, and then I'll redraw it uh, or re-ink it actually. Okay. And yeah, and just to make it feel more organic. And my coloring process is, is similarly weird. Where it's, where it's like, I, I, um, I see things in terms of values and textures. Yeah, okay. I don't, I don't particularly care about the color per se. Uh, I, I care about the interaction of colors. Right. Yeah. And um, 
And I think that's probably more from like studying fine art in the classic sense, not like, not like, you know, Mondrian or. Right. No, but yeah, but like, but like the way that, uh, um, um, the people that, uh, John Singer Sargent, the way he'd approach painting or, you know, Andrew Wyeth or people like that, even though they were illustrators, they were taking all the knowledge they learned from like centuries of, of oil painters. Right. So, yeah. so I'll be applying that to my work. Um, which, which means it's my work's going to look strange compared to like what, you know, your top 10 superhero artist is because it's right. But, so that's, it what's great, but that's what you want, you know, that's yeah. kind of like a door that McFarland busted open when he came out. That's why when all of us 13 year olds first saw um, Spider-Man 298 and 297, I think it was um, where Chance was on the cover and it was the first two McFarland covers for Spider-Man and it was that villain Chance and yeah. All of us were like, why the fuck does Spider-Man have barbed wire coming out of his wrists? And we literally thought when we saw that first cover, like it must be part of the story. Something must have happened where Spider-Man has barbed wire webs. And we were like, that is badass. And then it was never addressed. And we're like, oh, that's how this crazy fucker is just drawing him now with these giant eyes and these thick like inked lines. And, you know, I, I love that stuff. Have, have you ever heard of an artist named... Uh, Ryan Lee. Yeah. You have. Okay, great. Yeah. He's at a, a Michigan there. He's, he's one of my favorite too, man, his inking and his stipling and just the originality of the characters that he's drawn. You should check out his Instagram. Cause it really is. He's like, he's the trippiest guy for an ink artist. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know anybody else who takes ink and uses it psychedelically like this guy, you know? And I love when people do that. And Katie, Katie Sawatsky, yeah. Um, you know, she absolutely. So I love that stuff. It's just candy for my eyes. You know what I mean? So what, what you described with McFarlane coming on the scene, that was Sinkevich when I first saw him. Right. Okay. When I saw, I, I, I came to the direct market just as Bill was going on to new, uh, new mutants. Okay. Um, so I'd probably seen his work on newsstand on Dazzler covers or something. Right. Um, but I was coming in the comics at that point, right around that point. I think I think it was right around the within the few months of him starting New Mutants. And I saw it and everyone else is raving about John Byrne. And I go, well, yeah, he's good. He's clearly good. But I'd be looking at like Walt Simon and go, this guy's a god. And they're like. <laughs> <laughs> How long after did you get on uh New Mutants, or no, you weren't on New Mutants, you were on uh, New Warriors, right? Yes, yeah, that was years later. I mean, we're talking mid 80s versus early 90s, yeah. It's cool because then you know Marcus as well, right? Marcus Toe, yeah, we've met a few times, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, because a while after that, he was on uh, he had a really good run that I had a few friends who were a big fan of his uh, New Warriors run. I think it was after okay, I think it was volume two of New Warriors. Yeah, it was one of the newer ones because things were switched up a bit, but people people were big fans. Did I lose it again? I lost it again. God damn internet. <laughs> At least you're pretty to look at during those brief pauses. All right. All right. Here's we gotta we gotta talk about something that I'm a little bit embarrassed about. Because, Richard, I consider you a friend. And just as a friend, I should have fixed this by now. But I have not yet read The Doom That Came to Gotham. And finding it. That's it. That's it, right? Like, yeah. fuck. So as a writer, you not only have 
been part of the blessed stable of individuals who have gotten to work on the fucking bat, yeah. but you have written an official, like not in the line, but you've written an, a Batman story for DC. This is crazy. So what is that book about exactly? Cause I can't fucking find it. All right. So um, I was supposed to do a, a Hellboy one shot with Mike Mignola. Right. And um, Mike Richardson took him aside and said, Mike, you know, you got around 12 people doing Hellboy one shots and you're not producing your Hellboy comics fast enough for you not to be outnumbered by everyone else. <laughs> So Mike went, oh, awesome. fuck. And he cut all the other non-him Hellboy projects. Oh. That was fine. I understood the reason. It's a perfectly valid reason. And it makes sense because if suddenly everyone else is drawing Hellboy, then he's no longer the definitive Hellboy guy. Right. So I said, well, I have this idea. What if H.P. Lovecraft created Batman? And I faxed him over like two-page outline. And Mike loved it. And he said, well, let me reach out to Archie, who was handling all the Elseworlds stuff. And so he, he basically did a, a, a quick rewrite of my, my two pages, which was almost identical, uh, but added some mic bits. And uh, DC loved it. And I was supposed to draw it, but I ended up, Archie Goodwin passed away. Mm -hmm. And so I thought the book was dead. So I went and did other stuff. Then I think like four months later, another editor came on board. So I jumped back working on this. I went, all right, this is happening. And then he left DC. <laughs> so I went, well, this book is dead for good. So I wandered off. I did some other work. Then Mike Carlin got the book and he was an absolute prick. Um, yeah, I don't like him. He comes on, he looks Tell at us the, how you I feel. only did like 12 pages finished and i had 12 pages that were penciled and when i thought it was dead i let dc know i said well I, I i here's another 12 pages maybe you should pay me for them thinking that was it right right i didn't want to be on, on on the hook for 12 pages um so they paid me for pages that technically weren't done but so mike's looking at the first 12 page oh these are these are good these are good um and then he suggested an anchor which would have been wholly inappropriate pranking over me he would have just it, it would have been like um in it that, that type of change like i was like doing like super super tightly rental ren rendered pencils right like lots and lots of fine arms this guy would come in with like a big number six brush and just get rid of them all um and um this is shortly after my son was born and so my life was like really really full all of a sudden and then i had a blood clot form behind my eye oh my god yeah, it was, it was terrible. And um, and Mike was like, you need to give me this many pages or you're fired. And then I had the blood clot thing. I'm like, fuck it. I want to be fired. Right. <laughs> and then, and this is great. So the phone call where Mike fires me after I tell him I quit, uh, he starts ragging and how bad my first pages were. And I'm like, okay, you know what I've just kind of gone through and you're shitting on me that's fine so i i have no time for someone who's gonna uh kick someone when they're like going through shit yeah that's not nice and um i was perfectly happy with um troy nixie coming on board to draw it for better choice than i was actually um and uh yeah that's that's my doom that came to god it had the book has a very different ending than i would have given 
What's it about? I haven't been able to read it. Oh, sorry. What if H.P. Lovecraft created Batman? That's pretty much it. <laughs> it's got to be a little bit more to the plot. Like, oh, do you, uh, do you, you not just know fighting Cthulhu or like what's going on? Sort of. Uh, what we what what I ended up doing is uh, my initial pitch document. I paralleled all the Batman villains to like Lovecraftian variations. Okay. Um, the book starts um, with Bruce Wayne going to Antarctica to find a missing expedition, the Cobblepot expedition. Cool. And um, they find like some giant mutated penguins. Uh, they find the guy who's dead, but he's frozen and he's still operating. It's Mr. Freeze. He's trying to free some sort of monstrosity, but Bruce Wayne brings him back to Gotham. Um, alone, standing in, in, in the wilds, naked, surrounded by these mutant penguins, is Cobblepot, but they don't see him, so they leave him behind. I that mean, it's just cool, weird man. Shit like that. Gets the Gotham Killer Crocs in there, but he's actually like a crocodile reptilian monster, like a deep one. Uh, Rachel Ghoul is like some sort of eternal ancient spawn of the old ones. Shit, this and, sounds and rad. Two-Face gets turned into like a gate to uh, allow um, Rachel Ghoul to summon elder beings into the world. Okay. I, I, and there was like bits like um, uh, Green Arrow in this was like some sort of weird kind of like anti-Cthulhu cultist. He had his own belief about certain things. So these magic arrows, um, the arrows that pierced um, St. Sebastian, who was killed by arrows. So he had the arrowheads from there and he made his own arrows and they're apparently divinely used to kill demonic presences and stuff. So I came up with all this shit and Mike rehashed it. And at the end of it, he turned Batman into Man-Bat so he could fight right that's cool man i got a lot of people a lot of people love it um if it's digital you think they've got it like in the dc okay i might just get in there and read it there then yeah yeah Yeah. um yeah i i think there were some copies left in storage but then the whole diamond thing happened holy crap you know do you hear you've you've obviously heard the latest just happened yeah. like a it's, day or two ago. Like, Marvel's like, you're not primary no more. Oh, god damn, things have changed, eh? Well, it's it's a case of um, I used to have to explain to people why the exclusive situation with Diamond was bad for comics. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, we've been swimming in these waters since the early 90s, so right. people just don't know what it was like before. Mm-hmm. I mean, before when there's like 20 or 30 distributors, yeah. And there was all these overlapping distribution areas and distributors had to over order in case a book got hot. So even for mediocre selling books, it'd be like a 10, 12% cushion of over orders at the distributor level. Right. Just in case, you know, yeah. what if the next even plats on this book, right? I want to have like an extra hundred copies to sell. And of course, you know, back in those days, since the monthlies were the, were the bread and butter for comic shops, they overordered just in case. Right. Yeah. So as soon as Marvel, and this is going back, when Marvel basically said, screw this, we're tired of it being a competition, we're going to buy a distributor. None of them thought, shit, if we wipe out the distribution situation we have now, that 10 to 15% of over orders is gone. That's 10 to 15% of your direct profit as a publisher is gone. Yeah, it's silly. And not only that, when that happened, a lot of stores who were carrying credit with distributors and those distributors went out of business, right? Yeah. 
those are disappearing sales because whenever a comic shop closes, apparently somewhere around 40% of the customer base stops buying its product. Like period, they don't even go to like another shop. They just stop collecting. Well, if you look at the bigger map of North America where all the distribution was going on, um, while there may have been overlapping distributors, there weren't a lot of stop, uh, shops. I, I think the most at one point was like 2,500 shops across North America. Yeah. Even when I was and a kid. Them, yeah. And most of them would be in big cities. Mm-hmm. So if you lived in, I, I don't want to pick in any city, but if you lived in a smaller town that was on the satellite of a city, there's a, if you had a comic shop, it was the only one. Right. And if that went out of business, you got no other recourse for comics yeah. anywhere. You know, well, at the time, power. up until I was 12, I didn't discover comic shops till I was like 12, 13 years old. And I've been buying comics off the convenience store rack for years before that. That's where I bought my Spider-Man. My Spider- I'm pretty sure I bought Spider-Man 300 from Bostock Convenience in Mississauga. Like wow. I didn't get it from a comic shop. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I when I when I started getting into comics in the mid '80s, it was a, a comic shop. Now in Winnipeg, you think Winnipeg is fuck fuck nowhere? Um, it had um, Comic World, uh, Book Fair. Um, uh, the guy who owned uh, Joe Krolik owned um, a distribution, and yeah, owned two stores in Winnipeg. There was like five or six stores in Winnipeg. That's pretty good. Winnipeg. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Now, the problem was, outside of Winnipeg, there's nothing. <laughs> nothing. Right. right? Literally nothing. <laughs> Apparently, there weren't any other, all the other, and, and so Joe Krawlock's Sticks Distributor, Sticks Comics, that was the name of the store. He owned a distribution company, and a big chunk of his distribution was to, to uh, North Dakota. Because, because of his location, it was easier for him to distribute comics to, uh, to uh, the northern U.S. states in the central area than it was for another distribution company to open there. Even with cross so they would border, drive comics yeah. out through the border. They would cross the border with comics that were printed at, uh, in Montreal. Yeah. Dropped off at sticks by, by a truck or train or whatever. And they'd load up a van and it did hit. A, I think they had two vans that drove across the border to make sure they had their Wednesday comics. And that's back when it was truly free. That's when it was like, I remember my grandpa and I would go across. Well, I lived in St. Catharines. So uh, for anybody who doesn't know, it's near Niagara Falls. So right near the border. So we would, we went across the border so often we could just called it going over the river. So if we were going to go, you know, whatever school shop in the spring, you'd wear your crappy clothes over the river and you'd go and buy your new stuff, put it on, throw your other shit out. But I remember they were, they didn't even have to show like a driver's license. They had to show a driver's license, right? You didn't need a passport or nothing just to hop over to Buffalo and buy some cheesies, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Such a different world, man. Very different. Uh, Yeah. Um, who knows where it's going to go, how it's going to turn out. It's going to be fucking interesting. Like, do you think even if cons come back, it, it, it'll be the same? They're going to come back and they're going to be mostly the same. Like they're already announcing like summer and fall shows. I'm not entirely sure they're going to happen this year. I, don't know. Um, I talked to my art rep and he doesn't think he's doing any shows this year. And if he's not going, I'm not going to go. Right. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't make sense. It just becomes awkward. Um, so initially I was thinking of going to New York because I love New York. Right. But Would we even um, be allowed to go, right? Like who knows when that border is going to open? 
Well, the U.S. is going to be fully vaccinated before we are. Which is just for Canada be to be, I think it was 66th in vaccines like a week ago. For us to be 66th in anything is one of the most disgraceful things I've ever felt about this country. Like, well, country I mean, can order more vaccines than anybody else. How did this happen? Right? Did we? I feel like we just well, we got, got rid of our domestic of production. We got rid of our domestic production. It's yeah. I mean, and it was like a partnership of the conservatives doing one one company and the liberals doing the other. I mean, it's it's um, the liberals did it back when uh, back in the eighties during the Reagan Thatcher era. Um, the the directive was get the government out of everything because the government wrecks everything. Yeah. Because that was just what they were selling everyone. I mean, so we sell, you know, Petro Canada becomes private. Air Canada mm-hmm. becomes private. Our biggest um, government-owned pharmaceutical company is actually a partnership between the Canadian government and a university. And that gets sold. Uh, I think that was Trudeau. And then years later, the conservatives sold the other one, the other one. So we yeah. had, and, and not only did they sell it, they didn't like put any strings saying, well, you got to keep some manufacturing here in Canada. It just all went away. Yeah. Even hydro, and, right? Yeah. 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 And um, and now, you know, decades later, we kind of realized, you know, it's kind of good to keep the government owning some of these businesses. Right. But, you know, you can't, you can't, the government can't get Petro Canada back. The government oh, no. can't get their Canada back. No. It's too late. Yeah. We could set up a new company, but that would be hella expensive. Oh, my God. Um, I think... Okay, now this was a story in the springs of last year, so I don't know if it's happening now. In response to our situation and the fact that we're so reliant on European importation of vaccines because Trump said no vaccines get uh, sent out of the U.S. till we get full capacity. Right. Um, uh, I think Trudeau is investing in, it's going to take years, but we're, <laughs> in about five years, we're going to have domestic vaccine production again. Yeah, I heard they that's on the ball. I've heard that started where they're actually going to build a fucking place where we can actually medicate ourselves. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Well, and, and just just the fact people are going, why don't we just do it now? I say, how do you do now? It takes five years to build those kind of facilities. Oh, yeah, those facilities. It takes at least a year to design them. You don't just throw up a building and throw some microscopes and fucking vials in there. You know, yeah. it's, it's, there's a little more yeah. that has to go into these incredibly yeah, there's the like energy supply. There's the, uh, well, the environmental, yeah, environmentals of the building have to be probably so well monitored in those situations. Yeah. And these kind of freezers yeah. they use, this shit is fucking expensive. You don't just, yeah, and, that and shit the energy, yeah. I mean, they, they're literally, they might have to build a power plant specifically for that type of facility. Right. Yeah. And then there's, there's a whole other, how, I mean, it takes them eight months to pave a road in this province. You think they're just going to throw up a vaccine making facility? Like it's fucking nothing, right? (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's nonsense. Ah, Richard. um, It's always such a pleasure hanging out and talking to you, man. I've missed you. Thank you so much for hanging out. I can't wait till we can, bump elbows again and uh yeah. you know have a pint somewhere um i'm glad we got to spend that uh time in chicago together man because yeah. uh that was the last of it so at least we were kind of privileged enough to be at the last big ass one that went down right well i think 2022 is going to be a, a lot better i hope so um i personally this year um i don't want to say i've given up 
but I'm just yeah. I'm I'm just putting it out of mind as far as if there's going to be shows, if there's going to be anything. Um, so I'm going to work this year. This is going to be my savior, I figure, because um, we've got really good weather. Right. Um, my phone started ringing for tree work like three weeks earlier than it usually does. And it's blown up and I've got like ridiculous amounts of work to do. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take the year to where I have no pressure. I'm going to live a very simple life where I work and I pay down whatever debt I have and, you know, just, just make that my year. And then maybe next year, if things come back, we'll see what happens and we can get back on that source point conquering Canada train and see how it goes, you know? Yeah. Well, so, that, that's kind of what I'm doing here. I mean, um, so I know that the next arc or second coming is going to be starting shortly, actually. Right. Uh, so yeah. Have, yeah. So I'll have covers and layouts to do there. But in the interim, I'm going to be working on uh, Law of the Damned and um, getting that going. So that means I'll have Second Coming and, assuming I find a home for it, um, another project to push in 2022. That's exciting, man. You've got a few yeah. things on the table. And seriously, people, the pitch that he was telling me about, <laughs> is there a name for it? What did you call it? Did you have a name for it yet? Yeah, well, that, are you allowed? Not don't say it if you're not allowed. Right. In hell. It's it's right now. It's it's called Law of the Damned. All right, yes, but it's a cool idea, man. And the visuals, the way you were describing it, it's it's yeah. fucking it's gonna look sick. Um, and we still will have to rope you in at some point when you have the time, uh, and get a source point press variant title out of you, uh, variant cover out of you at some point, and we can make yeah. that happen. Um, right. uh, have you are you familiar with Graham Miserac? Graham Mizrak, he, he does a book called Yuki versus Panda. No, I don't know it. And uh, it's a Canadian book. He's an Oakville, Oakville guy. And yeah. uh, he's got like four volumes of this book out over the years. And it's really popular here. It's been super popular here, enough that he's made four volumes, big Kickstarters. Um, yeah. So it's always been known in Ontario and Canada. And uh, SourcePoint has picked it up. Um, so it's going to be going out. And we got Jeremy Clark. Uh, fellow Canuck Jamie, Jeremy Clark on there doing a, a variant cover for a shop out in the States. So uh, I, you know me, man, I'm doing, I'm trying to infuse as much Northern talent into the entity that is source point press as I can. Um, just cause you know, I'm proud of what we got, man. Maple and, uh, syrup makes everything better. Right. It's, it makes everything sweeter, man. Awesome. Richard, uh, stay safe, be well. Um, and thank you. Thank you for being uh, a positive, sensible, reasonable voice during this whole thing. Um, because you've always, no, you've always standed, stood up for, you know, what's right and what's justice, but you've never, you've never, you never let yourself get drawn into it. You know, I've seen you have debates. I've seen you have conversations. I've even seen you get a little, you know, riled up, but I've never seen you lose your fucking cool. And I've never seen you take it away from being an actual, like, factual debate. You know, it never gets to name calling with you. And uh, I just appreciate that. I appreciate your feed and you brighten my day when I see your, your pretty pictures online. So uh, everybody get online and follow Richard, because if you only know Richard for his actual published work, you don't understand how much shit you're missing out on because um, he's constantly exercising different areas of art and sharing it with us. And it's super cool. So I appreciate it. And I appreciate you, Richard. My pleasure, man. Good Let's times. kids. Soon. Oh, we definitely are going to uh, super good times. Kids, that is all we are going to have this week uh, on an elegant weapon. So please take it. Ace.
Take care. And I will remind you all that this beautiful Jamaican rock and roll that you hear behind us, that's the Slackers. It's beautiful music for your friends. Go to Bandcamp or Spotify and look up the Boss Harmony Sessions and you will find the Slackers. Beautiful music for our friends. But until then, stay safe, be cool. And like I say, take it ace.